All right, well, good morning. It's so excited to be here with you guys all today. Welcome everyone who's joining us online. And uh, as you can see, we're going to start a series today called From the Ashes. And this is going to be a six-week series that takes us all the way through to Easter Sunday, to the resurrection of Jesus. And I tell you, I get really pumped when I think about Easter. I love Easter. I mean, for the obvious reason of that is the reason why we do what we do because of what happened on Easter. But also, I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for Easter eggs. I, I love watching the kids get eggs. I love the candy. I, I love candy. So I, I love all the fun stuff that comes with it. But even on top of that, the chance we have to really reach people that only come sometimes on Easter Sunday or Christmas or on the holidays. I get excited when I think about the people walking through the door that we get to say, hey, nice to meet you. Welcome to Celebration Center. I, I just get real pumped for it. So as we build into Easter, um, just be, be excited with me. You know, Pray how God can use you guys to help reach this community and reach these people on Easter Sunday. So I wanted to talk today about, we're talking about from the ashes. Um, Let's talk about ashes. You know, ashes don't necessarily give the most pleasant thought when you think of a pile of ash, right? If you're ever cleaning out a fireplace and you accidentally spill the ashes when you're going into the garbage can, you just made a bigger mess for yourself, right? They're, ashes are something that are never able to get put back together. It's disintegrated, destroyed, it's just a pile of residue, right? Ashes are actually described as the powdery residue left after the burning of a substance that remains, the remains of something destroyed. Um, documents get turned into ashes when we want absolutely nobody to see what was on those things, right? You put them in the fireplace and they are unrecoverable. Um, when somebody dies, one of the options is cremation, where their body becomes a pile of ashes, just a remnant of what they once were. But the most common form of ashes that we think of comes from a fireplace. If you guys have ever gone camping or maybe a fireplace at home now in California, we didn't have these fancy gas fireplaces that I'm seeing all over here. We just had fireplaces that had to be cleaned out, and you had to clean out all the ashes. And going camping was super fun. I loved camping. Now, we have a campfire at night, and eventually, you know, it burns down to just the, the burning pile of ashes. But what comes from the campfire, before it's that pile of ashes, you get the warmth from the fire, you get the light, you get campfire stories, and you get s'mores. All right, what is a camp without s'mores? Now, one time... We're out roasting marshmallows. Now, I said, I grew up camping. We went all the time. We're sitting around this campfire, and we're all making s'mores, and a marshmallow catches on fire. Does anyone here actually prefer their marshmallow burned to a crisp on s'mores? You're wrong, right? That's wrong. <laughs> but we're roasting marshmallows, and my cousin has their, she has this marshmallow over the fire, and it bursts into flames. What is the thing you do when your marshmallow catches on fire? You blow it out. No, Donald, you don't do that, but that's what she did. She started waving this thing back and forth. I'm sitting there in shorts, and that marshmallow takes a flying boom onto my leg. In sheer panic, I go, oh, and I start batting my leg. Then I have fire on my hand and my leg and gooey marshmallow. It made for a really funny story for my brothers. You know, they were dancing around. They, they called it the fire dance that I had jumping up and down with flaming goo all over. Now, no major burns, you know, just a, a little singe on my leg, and then lots of laughter, because they saw me catch on fire. And now, whenever we roast marshmallows, I make sure to tell my girls, hey, when that thing catches on fire, slowly bring it back and blow on it, because I know my girls would go, dad, and do the same thing, and I would have PTSD from camping trips. Now, I was lucky that I didn't burn my hand too bad or my leg too bad, but all that to say, I had marshmallow ashes on my leg <laughs> and my hand. There was nothing good that came from those ashes. That was sheer pain. But ashes from an object become a pile of dust, 
no longer resembling what they once were. You couldn't take a pile of ashes here and a pile of ashes there and know what they once were if they truly are just reduced. And sometimes, I think in our lives, we can feel like our life can be a disappointing pile of ashes. Sometimes we can get to a point where we're so beat down and broken that our life just doesn't resemble what we think it should. It, it turns into something that we say, man, that's my life now, and this is my life now, and it's just bad. And maybe it was something that life threw at you that led you to that point, or maybe it was a decision you made that really backfired, and it just made you feel like, man, my life has just crumbled, and it's just fallen apart. But even if your thoughts or your life you feel like has been reduced to this, I want to talk about that hope that we have today. Because the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that he has the ability to take us up from the ashes to experience a brand new life that is nothing like we've ever seen. Said another way, nobody in here, nobody in here is broken beyond repair. In and through Jesus, you can arise above the ashes and experience a full, abundant life in him. Now, this series isn't just going to be about people being broken and shattered and beaten you know, all the time. Um, this is going to be a real series for anyone who really wants to understand really taking that step into your journey with Jesus, really rising above maybe where you are now and experiencing a life that he has for you. And each week, we're going to take a different look at Jesus' life, a different aspect of his ministry here on earth, and talk about how we can learn from him, learn from that aspect, apply it into our lives all the way through the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And today, we're going to start with a big word. The one, one everyone can identify with, even one that Jesus himself identified with right at the beginning of his ministry. We're going to start a conversation about temptation. Yes, the word that everybody knows. Nobody wants to talk about because everybody deals with it. As a matter of fact, when you hear the word temptation, I'm willing to bet some of you right now can immediately go to a point in your life where you either were tempted or maybe you are tempted right now. Something you're dealing with where you go, oh man, I really want that, but you know it's not necessarily the best thing for you. Or maybe you can think of a point where you gave in to that temptation, where you gave in and you experienced for that fleeting moment something really cool and then the after effects of something not so cool because of what happened after. See, temptation is to desire something, especially something wrong or unwise. So I'm pretty sure we can all identify with this, right? Um, some of you may see temptation through the eyes of your kids all the time. You can see that like, when I know my daughter's going to do something, like I told her just last night actually, she, they had these little coconut rolls on the table, and my daughter Avery got up and she went over. I said, Avery, don't do it. And she looks at me. So Avery, don't. She starts reaching. I knew right there she's battling this temptation to not finish her dinner, but to eat that little coconut crisp roll. Sometimes, you know, it's easy to see it through a child, but sometimes we can miss just the battle that we may have with it all the time going through temptation. But here's a truth about temptation temptation should be expected. Don't ever think you're exempt from experiencing temptation. It should be expected. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, it's a fallacy, I think, to think that anyone, including you or me, can be immune from experiencing temptation in some way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, immediately when Jesus decided it was now his time to start his ministry on earth, he went somewhere and faced right off the bat temptation. The devil met him right out of the gate to tempt him. And so we're going to begin to look into Jesus' life, the beginning of his ministry, and talk about the temptation that he went through, even though he is God in the flesh, he still experienced temptation. Now, again, we need to acknowledge that we can, we're all going to expect this. 
Today, tomorrow, at some point, we'll all experience temptation. We're not immune to it. And no one is immune from the desires that come into the, the flesh. No one's immune from those desires that may take us away from our desired walk with Jesus. Now, it comes in many forms. I'm sure if I were to ask, if I were to put it out there, how have you been tempted in your life? Everyone would have something. Some of them would line up the same. A lot of them would be different because I think we all, we all have different things. Different things in life will come at you different ways. Not, no two people may have the exact same set of everything that tempts them. But maybe it can be something that you think is small. Maybe it's just sneaking in a little bit of social media time when you're at work, when your boss is looking that way and you're like, oh, what's happening on my social media now? Or maybe it's something even, maybe you don't think it's that big. You know you have responsibilities to do, but you're going to binge that next episode on Netflix because that cliffhanger on whatever you were watching was just, oh man, you're going to sacrifice whatever you need to get done to watch that next episode. Or maybe it's a little bigger. Maybe you're dealing with filing your taxes. And you know, if you change that number just a little bit, your refund becomes a little bit bigger, and that's something you could really use right now. So, so you're tempted to, to smudge a little number, and you're a little fish. The IRS will never notice. That temptation is there, though. I actually was talking to a friend of mine who the IRS made a pretty big mistake on his tax returns, and he got issued a check thousands of dollars more than what it should have been. So now he's refunding the IRS refund. He called them and had to work it out, and they said, no, we're right. He said, no, actually, you're wrong. I don't get that much money back. I would like that money back, but I don't get that. And so he had to work it out with them, and eventually he is now sending back the IRS money. But I can't imagine how many people, you know, including myself, like if you got that check and you go, oh, they would never know. How tempting it would be to keep that chunk of money. Now, in the eyes of some people, that may not seem like a big problem. It may seem like a little thing, but the thing with temptation, and when you give in to it, a little thing leads to a big thing. And it, or even just a little thing could lead to a little thing, and then a little thing, and turns into a really big problem that just started with just a small little compromise. Believe me when I say little temptations and little desires can lead to really big problems. And I think this can lead to something that we all agree is devastating. A tiny compromise, a small compromise here, can lead to a broken marriage down the road. A small, a small misstep here saying, oh, I'm just going to give in on this once, can lead to losing a job, a broken marriage, a ruined relationship, a career going south, a ministry closing down. And the list can go on and on from what can happen when we decide to give in to something that we know is wrong. And it does us no good to pretend like we're immune from it. John, 1 John says this about walking in the light and making sure we're equipped for this. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Man, trusting God 101, don't call him a liar, right? So let's begin on this common ground. Starting point for temptation. We all deal with it. We've all had it. We've all given in at some point. We're all on the same page with what this is and what we're going to be talking about. Whether it's today or tomorrow, through the entirety of our lives, we're going to be dealing with this T word, temptation. And to cap it off, there is a high probability, really high, that we're going to mess up at some point. It, it's going to, you know, the chances are really, really slim that you say, today I'll never mess up again, and you carry that all the way through to the end. If you can do that, man, that is incredible. Power to you. But the chances are really, really high that we'll mess up at some point. So how do we manage this? How do we respond to temptation? How do we look at Jesus and see what did he do and what are principles we can take that to make sure that our life doesn't turn into that pile of ashes, that we say, you know what, through Jesus, I get to rise above this. I get to work through this to stay strong and to deal with it. 
Well, I think that one of the keys to understanding how temptation works is understanding that it begins with your identity. Temptation begins with your identity. Before we talk about what Jesus, how he went through temptation in Matthew chapter four, I wanna backtrack just a little bit. The very end of Matthew chapter three, we come to a great story and it's the baptism of Jesus. So Matthew 3, 13 to 17, outline the baptism of Jesus. It says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I loved, whom I love and with him I am well pleased. So this is a very significant point in Jesus' ministry, right? He is starting and he's now getting baptized and the Holy Spirit comes on and God, uttered, God says something which is amazing. It says, this is my son with whom I loved and whom I'm well pleased. Now notice what God didn't say. God didn't say, good, now go do your job. God didn't say, hey, you did that. Everyone watch out. Here comes Jesus. He's gonna show you what to do. He started by saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I love that line. This is my son. It's declared. And that is Christ's identity. He knows right there, and he knew it before, but it is affirmed. He is the child of the most high God. That is his identity. And the key to understanding temptation, I think, is not just knowing that about him, but knowing that that is our identity as well. We are children of God and nothing less. We are the children of God. This is a powerful reality, so powerful that when Jesus is drawn into the desert, the very, this is the very first thing Satan tries to call into question. When you look at the first temptation in Matthew 4, 3, it says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? The devil doesn't come at him with all the other stuff first. The very first thing he says is, if you are. He tries to cast doubt in who Jesus is. And I think the same thing happens to us when we wrestle with temptation as well. We can start wrestling with our identity in Jesus. For Jesus, the tempter said, if you are the son of God. For even the garden, he said, did he really say? Starts to get her to question who she was, who God created her to be. Maybe you've heard a sentence or something like this in your life. Maybe you've heard, if you're really a Christian, you wouldn't, dot, dot, dot. If you really loved God, then you wouldn't, that. If you were only more like him, or if you were really saved, maybe you wouldn't be suffering the way you are. You see, the question may be different for all of us, but the motive is always clear. The motive is to take your identity away and get you doubting who God is, to get you to doubt God's promise for your life, to get you to doubt that he's the one that can carry you through. And that's where things can start to go south. Now, doubt, in my experience, very seldom leads to a wise decision. Doubt leads to fear, it leads to worry, it leads to anxiety, and ultimately it leads to us acting on an impulse or making the wrong choice because of our fear or doubts. But I love the fact that we have a God on our side who beat temptation. A God on our side who faced it, looked it in the eyes, and was able to overcome. In summary, when you're dealing with temptation, always remember who you are and always remember whose you are. Never lose sight that you are a child of God. Jesus stayed in his identity this entire time as he was tempted. And we have the ability to do the same. Every time Jesus was tempted, he responded using the word. He used his father's word to ultimately say no. 
And because of that, because he stayed in his identity and used scripture to back up why he wasn't going to do it, the devil ultimately fled his presence. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When we submit to God, when we claim our identity as his kids and we know that we are nothing less, we get to use that to say no whenever temptation comes our way. We get to use that to say this is not right, this is what's right because I know who I belong to. I know what he has for me and it's better than this temporary pleasure, this temporary compromise would ever give me because I know what he has for me. We have the ability through him to persevere. We have the ability through him to thrive and press on, knowing that we are and always will be a child of God. Now, so it starts with that. And then, then the devil comes at Jesus three separate ways. And I think we can all identify with maybe one of these three ways that the devil comes at him and says, this is why you should do what I'm telling you is best. You see, the devil comes in and he starts questioning the fact that Jesus knows we have the God of provision working with us. See, God is our provider. We have the God of provision. Now, we all deal with this. We all deal with the need for stuff, the need for sustenance. We all have the need to be provided for. But this is crazy how the devil comes at Jesus in this particular moment. So Matthew 4, 3 through 4 says, The tempter came to him and says, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man, I love bread. If I had the ability to make bread just like that, there'd be so much bread in my house. I got a bread machine and I started making a lot of bread and I was told to stop making bread, but I love bread. Have you ever been really, really hungry? And I don't mean like, oh, it's getting lunchtime, I'm getting hungry, or hey, Pastor Dustin, talk too long, come on, it's time to go eat. You know, it's, but I mean really, really hungry. Whether you missed a meal or you lost track of time or you're, you're fasting, but you get to that point where you are starving. Now, I used Avery a little bit earlier, but I'll use her again because it's a perfect example of bad decision making when it comes to meals. My youngest daughter, Avery, she's four. Unless it's pasta on the table, she's not interested in dinner very often. And I mean just pasta with hardly anything. She doesn't want sauce. She just wants the noodles. And she will slurp those things up and she'll get more and she goes for it. But if it's not pasta, she makes very, very poor dinner time choices. She chooses to play, chooses to jump out. And one of our dinnertime battles is, Avery, get back in your chair. Avery, get back in your chair. Oh my gosh, Avery, you're going to lose things. And she doesn't even care. She just wants to play. But then what happens at bedtime? Parents, you know this. The I'm hungry scream starts to fill the room. It's, Avery, it's bedtime. But I'm hungry. It's like, well, we already had dinner. She goes, well, I just want a fruit snack. I just want the cereal, like, you know, cinnamon toast crunch, whatever sugar cereal we have. It turns into wanting that and not what was for dinner. And of course, we have to be the bad guys you know, and say, well, breakfast is in like 12 hours. Time to go to bed. Like, but I'm so hungry. And I have no doubt in her mind that she is hungry. But I also have no doubt in my mind that her dinner is still sitting right there on the table, that she hasn't touched it. And we can tell her to go back to it, but she won't do it. Sometimes she does. Sometimes she goes to bed hungry. And then when she wakes up in the morning, no matter what we put in front of her for breakfast, she will destroy. It is breakfast time. All that to say, have you ever been that hungry, just famished? I can only imagine how hungry Jesus was at this point. He had been in the wilderness now for his 40-day fast. That is a long time to be without bread. And he is hungry. And Satan comes and says, hey, after he questions his identity, he says, let me give you something. I know you want this. I know you need this. Now, if you had the power, like Jesus did, to turn that stone into bread, or you could say, Chick-fil-A, 
and there you go. Or you could say burger or salad, whatever it was that you want to be like, food. How many of us would really stay true to their 40-day fast if they could snap their fingers and make something so delicious and so amazing it was right there in front of you, right? Well, Jesus could have done this. But aside from the bread, aside from the food, what was Satan really offering Jesus? He was trying to manipulate the need for provision. He was trying to say, I can provide. My way is better. It's not about your way. Look what I can do for you. For Jesus, it was food. But for us, it can come in many different shapes and forms. For some of us, it may be finances. Maybe what's something we could give into to get more financial relief? Maybe it could be clothes. It could be something else. It could be something that you just need a quick fix for right now. But however, in all these situations, giving into that easy, quick fix, this tempting shortcut leads to a big disaster later. It's easy to look at the quick fix. It's easier to look at the quick fix than it is to look at the God fix. What does God want us to learn through this? Why are we facing this now? What does God have? How is he going to provide and not what is the world going to provide? And when we understand this, we can look to God and know that when we have our identity in him, he is our ultimate provider. He's the one that says, I will give you what you need. Now, don't, don't convince, or, uh, mix up wants and needs. God didn't say, I will give you everything you want because, oh man, I would have so much junk food in my house if it was everything you want. But God says, I will give you everything you need. He is the ultimate provider. Giving into the world is our ultimate source of provision can lead to a life of giving into temptation to get what we want on our terms and not God's terms. 1 Timothy 6 uh, verse 9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see, this, this lays it out. It says, the world will lead to destruction. If you follow and give in to what the world has, it will ultimately lead to destruction. But following God leads to obedience and leads to hope. Another one of my favorite verses when uh, talking about provision is Philippians 4.19. It says, And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. This reminds me that I can stay the course. It's not saying it's going to be easy by any means. And people that go through maybe a financial burden know that things aren't always easy. But we can understand that when we look to God, we know that he knows what's best. And he will ultimately provide those things through the temptations and trials. He's the source of my provision. All this to say, I know that when I give up my physical need, when I give up my earthly, my flesh, I get to trust that he provides and that provision can only come from God. He can be trusted. His word gives us life, not food. Food doesn't give us life. Food may give your flesh life, but God gives you abundance of life. God gives you the ability to control finances. He ability to work in your relationships and ability to work through things. But during this season as we lead into Easter, choose to go without giving into the world and choose to go giving into God instead. Understand and remind ourselves that God is all we need. And so that's the first thing Satan throws at Jesus, is let me provide for you. And the second thing he throws at Jesus is protection. Matthew 4, 5, and 7 says this. The devil then took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of God, there's that identity thing again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Satan not only comes in and questions your identity, but he tries to manipulate scripture even. He's like, oh, well, it says this. And Jesus has to course correct, say, no, it really ultimately says this. 
Jesus brings up a very important principle through this. He says, do not test God. But if we're honest, we can feel tempted to do foolish things all the time because we know and trust God, and we know that he's a God of grace. We know that he's a God of love, but sometimes we can use that to justify things that we do. Maybe you've said this, and I know, I know that these, and when I say maybe you said this, trust me, these are all things that I've done in my life. Maybe we've said, God will forgive me, it's okay. Uh, maybe it, it'll be okay later, I know God's grace, I know God's love, I'll come back and everything will be right. So what happens is we know he protects. We know that he works all things together for good. We know that he is omnipotent and all-knowing and that nothing can derail what he wants. But then what happens is when we start using these lines, it comes down to a heart issue. It turns into a selfish decision instead of a selfless decision to follow him. Hebrews 2.18 says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, I don't want God to be my excuse to give in. I want him to be the reason that I don't. I don't want him to be the reason that I say, oh, well, you know, God loves me anyway, so why not? I want him to say, God loves me, that's why I know I shouldn't. God has something for me, that's why I know I'm strong enough to get through this, because I've got him on my side. I don't want him to be my excuse, I want him to be my banner as I go forward. We have the ultimate resource in God, because he can, he's been there. Jesus was there, he was there getting tempted. If, if you ever go to a support group or of any kind, or you're, you're struggling with something, what are, who are typically the people that you will call for support? A lot of times, you're going to call someone who's gone through that same issue. You'll say, so-and-so has dealt with this, and they got through it. I'm going to call them because I need their help. I know there's programs that are designed that will give sponsors, people who are still going through it, but they're overcoming, and those are people that you gravitate towards. These people can help me. And then when we look at Jesus, we can say, wow, this is someone who went through it. He looked at temptation. Temptation came to him. There was the protection. There was the provision. It was, hey, let me give you this. And those were things that Jesus could have wanted. I know for the, the food, for sure he was hungry, but he looked at it and he conquered it. He said no, and this is why. We get to look at him and say, wow, we have the teammate, we have the person right next to us who beat this battle. He beat this battle and he can help me overcome it as well. And not only does, can he help you overcome it, he wants you to overcome it. You're not gonna have a bigger cheerleader in your life than you have with God cheering you on to get through the trials that the world throws at you. He already won the fight, and he's fighting alongside with you. That is the best teammate you could ask for. Sometimes it's really hard, but sometimes you just have to simply ask God for the strength and say no. And if you're in a situation that's hard, give some time to prayer. Like I said, he's been there. Call some friends. Find a community of people that are also trusting God to get through it, and then you guys get to build this group together and say, hey, we can overcome this because we've got the one who overcame it with us. He is our leader, and together we get to fight this and conquer it. Call a member of maybe a Bible study you've attended, or as we start launching small groups here, get plugged in with people that you know. I can share life with these people. We can build each other up. We can spend time in the word. We can spend time in prayer. We can share life, and we can walk towards that life where God is our provider, where God is our protector, and we get to build each other up through that. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. I love that, the ever-present help in trouble. When you're in that moment, when you're being tempted, God is right there. It's not a, oh God, when you have time, get to me. He's there. He's able to look that temptation in the eye with you and give you the strength to overcome. And the third and final temptation that the devil throws at Jesus, he says to worship me, and in doing so, that he would receive dominion over all the kingdoms in the world. So it seems like an easy choice, but for some, this is really a temptation of position. 
this position of power can be overwhelming. Now, often we're given a choice in life all the time to worship something other than God. And we may not think of it as worship, but when we boil down to something that ends up taking our priority away from our talk, of our look at God, that becomes an idol. It becomes a point of worship. It becomes something we're setting above the importance that we have for God. We have to choose. And this can be an idol. This can be a person. This could be an object. Could be money. Could be a job. This can be whatever we put in a position above our love for God. And we have to choose to worship God alone and trust in the significance that he has that can only come from our relationship to him. As a son or daughter of God, remember your identity, we get to know, we have the joy of knowing that our inheritance is greater than anything this world could ever offer. Our inheritance, what we get, the reward we get to be with celebrating in heaven with Christ forever is better than anything that can come your way here. Any position, any power that comes at you here is nothing compared to what comes later. And that comes back when we battle our flesh, right? The, the instant gratification. I mean, we live in a world now, especially with you know, social media and just everything, where we live in a now society. I want it now, want it now, want it now. But our ultimate position comes from us knowing what our identity is in God. And nothing can take that away. We will inherit something that cannot be shaken. Truth be told, the best is yet to come. And that, just knowing that gives me so much hope for the future. The best is yet to come. When things are bad, the best is yet to come. When things are good, the best is yet to come. Knowing that God is in charge, we can always look ahead and say, man, what God has for me is the best, and the best is yet to come. When being tempted, keep things in this perspective. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We do get to experience the fun things in life. I, I love to have fun. I love to snowboard. I like to, to go to Disneyland, as a lot of you, you know, know about me and my family. But I love to go do fun things. But I know that when I put God first, he then gives me so many things in life to enjoy. And I enjoy them so much better knowing that I'm putting God before these things. These are, these are bonuses in my walk with God. I know that it would be totally different if I decided to put God separate and do these things first. I'm missing so much more that God has for me. And it goes beyond the stuff. It goes beyond the things. I'm missing out on a joy that comes from following God, knowing that the best is yet to come because he is the captain of my ship, that I am following him. Use all of our stuff. Use all of our things. Use our life to enhance our walk with him, not use that as a hindrance to our walk with him. I'd like to invite the worship team back up <clears throat> today. And one glaring thing was consistent. Every time the devil came at Jesus, every time the devil came at him, I love this, Jesus responded with scripture. Every time. Whether it was provision, protection, position, God used, or Jesus used the, the Bible to say, this is why I'm not gonna do that. This is why I'll say no. This is why it's so much better to not give in. The word of God is so powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we journey through the next six weeks going into Easter, I want to encourage you guys, spend some time in this book. Find a reading plan. Find a way where you could say, I'm going to spend time in here because it's powerful. And I know that when the, life, when the world throws things at my life, this book has answers. God's able to speak to us so much through what was written in here to help us get through all these things today. You could read one proverb every day. 
Aside from February, you know, there's 30 or 31 days in a month. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Read a proverb every day. Start your day by saying, God, I'm going to look into your wisdom for here. Or you could simply read two to three chapters of a gospel each day, starting in Matthew. And by the time we get to Easter, you would have read all four gospels. But pick a plan. Pick something that says, I'm going to put this word, I'm going to infuse myself with this. Because Jesus used this to overcome his big need. When he was hungry, he used the word to say, God is my provider. Use this to infuse yourself with God's word. It may mean uh, giving up some of your evening, watching, you know, not binging that last show to spend some time in the word. It'll be worth it. It may mean setting your alarm 30 minutes earlier in the day to wake up and, and read some passages before you start your day. But I think the best time to tune your instrument is before the concert, not after the concert. Start your day reading something, reading the word. Get your family reading something with you. Find a creative way to carve out time and say, God, I'm going to spend time with you because when I'm tempted, your word, your presence, your love, my identity in you, which is so spoken about in here, is going to get me through that. And let's make no mistake, we're all going to face it. We'll all face temptation. Some of you may face it the minute you walk out that door. Who knows what it'll look like for you, but it's going to happen. Sin and temptation don't take vacations. But the great news is we have a God that doesn't either. We have a God who says, I'm in this path with you. Dive into him. Let him give you the strength. Let him be the reason you go forward with your walk and you're able to resist what the world throws at you because he's on your side and you are his child. Find people to keep yourselves accountable and be ready to dive in. I'm ready to dive in with all you guys. And this season, I think, is going to be an incredible one for all of us as we focus on Jesus, the word, and how that will bleed out of these walls into this community. Would you all please stand with me? Facing temptation is no easy task, but here's what I do know. God gave us his word. And Jesus used that word to resist it. Use Jesus, use God, let him infuse your heart and be the reason you can face anything and say, I can't give in, I won't give in because God didn't give in on me. God's on my side and we can beat this together. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can, we can look at the temptation of Jesus and use that to see how temptation may come at us and how we can overcome temptation, God. I pray that in the midst of our trials in life, whether it is protection, provision, or position, God, whatever it comes at us, we get to say, you are my protector. You are my provider. My position comes from you and it's through you. And that we're able to resist from that, God. And that the, the enemy and the world will ultimately flee from us in those aspects because we have you on our side. So God, we thank you for your ultimate provision. We thank you for who you are and what you do. And God, we use you as our banner to move forward, not as an excuse to fall back. Thank you, God. We love you. And everybody said, amen. amen.